Oh, Lord, we are grateful, and you are worthy. And may that song and those words that we have sung not just be words that we have sung, but, Lord, be reflected in our lives, and that we would dedicate ourselves to you because you are worthy. And we're so thankful. We're thankful for your word, thankful that you've given us uh, your direction and insight and wisdom and that your spirit has been given as well so that we might understand your word and apply it. And to that end, I pray this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, 2020 is uh, here. Um, and the coming of a new year often prompts reflection, doesn't it? I'm sure many of us have probably made resolutions and perhaps some of us have already broken those resolutions. But, you know, with each new year, it is a, it is a good time to stop and reflect. Uh, as Brock said earlier, you know, each Sunday we have that opportunity really to sort of stop in the middle of the week and reflect. But, but with the coming of a new year, we can take a further step back and just kind of look at our lives, examine where things are at, um, goals that we might have. And it's good to do this not only as individuals and as families, but it's good to do this as a church. Because as a church, we can so often in the course of a year get caught up in the details, the programs, the ministries, the, the different specific needs, uh, what it takes to, to do church. We can, we can get so caught up in all the trees that we lose sight of the forest, right? So it is good that, that we remind ourselves on a frequent and consistent basis, what are we doing here? What is our purpose here? What is our mission You know the mission of the church, right? You know the mission of our church? Jesus gave it 2,000 years ago. It hasn't changed. He was very clear. If you remember what he said in Matthew 28 at the Sea of Galilee, right? He said these words, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is the mission statement of the church. It's, it's our mission statement, our purpose. In fact, it's right on the wall out there. It says our mission is to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, to exalt Him, to glorify Him by making disciples of Him who love and serve and know Him. And so it's important just to remember that, to remind ourselves of that. And, and, and as Jesus said in the Great Commission, how do we do that? How do we make disciples? How do we make followers of Him? It is by one. Saints, baptizing. Secondly, by teaching them, instructing them. It's by evangelism and discipleship. It's by bringing people to Christ and then coming alongside them and helping them grow in Christ. That is what it means to make disciples. And, and it all begins with evangelism. The mission statement is not just evangelism, but it begins there, doesn't it? I mean, how can a person be a follower of Christ if they have not heard of the gospel of Christ? How can they make a commitment to follow Christ if they have not heard the message of Christ and the good news that he gives? It all begins with evangelism. As Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so... As the elders were discussing, talking about these things uh, this last year now, uh, 
we decided, we agreed that we wanted to make 2020 the year of evangelism here at Calvary Bible Church. The year of evangelism. Throughout the year, we're going to be honing our focus within uh, uh, our church as a whole, within our fellowship groups, within our small groups. We want to hone our focus on evangelism. And I'm going to give you more details next week on what the plans are and what that is to look like. But we wanted to kick off the new year, the first five Sundays of the year, by focusing our attention on evangelism. So the, the theme of each message in this week and the coming four weeks after this is on evangelism, on the gospel. Not just the need to, to share the gospel, but, but to having the right motivation to share the gospel. Having the right gospel message and having a right understanding of God's work in and through the gospel. And as we embark on this theme, I just want to kind of step aside here and let's be honest with each other. When you hear that, this is the year of evangelism. We're going to focus on evangelism. In the next five weeks, we're going to have sermons on evangelism. What happened inside with your emotions? Probably similar to me. There is maybe a little excitement, but also a sense maybe of dread or fear. Uh, a sense of perhaps guilt. I mean, if you want to make people feel uncomfortable or feel guilty, then do a message on evangelism. I'm right about that, right? Because so often it seems those messages on evangelism uh, make us feel bad for, for not sharing the gospel or not sharing the gospel enough or, or not knowing how to share the gospel well. And then we feel like we need to do it out of guilt or obligation or duty. But you know, God chooses to motivate us to evangelism in a different way. And in fact, as we begin our series on evangelism, the first two messages, we really want to focus on the motivation. We need to be doing it for the right reasons, not just doing it. Because God has given us through his word and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the right motivation to share the gospel, to be evangelists. And I wanted to focus our attention this morning on one aspect of that motivation. God motivates us by his own example. And we see that motivation in the book of Jonah, of all places. So if you could turn there with me, the book of Jonah. Now, certainly Jonah is one of the most well-known stories in all the Bible. In fact, when I said his name, the name Jonah, what came to your mind? Yes, the whale or, or the fish. You know, I, I find it interesting, though, that, that though Jonah and being inside the belly of the fish gets all the attention, it gets all the press. Really, only three verses out of the 48 in the book talk about that particular miracle. Indeed, the central message of Jonah goes far deeper than the miracle of the fish and really has a lot to do with evangelism and being motivated to evangelism. The central person in the story, by the way, and just keep this in mind as we look at it this morning, is not Jonah and it's not the fish. All right? But before we get to that, let's remind ourselves of this story of Jonah. How does it start? you guys remember? Take a look at the first verse of the book with me. Jonah 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So here Jonah is given the commission, Jonah, this is going to be the year of evangelism for you. You're going to go to Nineveh. So that's what Jonah does, right? His response, oh, Lord, I've been waiting for you to ask me to go to those Gentiles. I'm on my way. I'm on the first train out of here. Is that what he did? 
No, actually it was quite the opposite. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so here we have this book beginning with an incredible irony. A prophet who does not want to prophesy. God wanted to send Jonah to deliver a message of judgment to Assyria. The Ninevites. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Why? Well, it says in the text that that they were uh, full of wickedness. Later in Jonah chapter 3, it describes them as a nation of violence. And in fact, we know from extra biblical records the ruthlessness of the Assyrians. Many atrocities that they would commit, particularly over a conquered people. Things I can't even repeat here because of the graphic nature of what they did. We might even consider uh, how people felt about the Assyrians as much like how people feel about ISIS today. They were the bad guys. So Jonah refuses to go. God says, I want you to go to the Ninevites. Jonah, in fact, goes the other way. He does something a prophet should not do which is directly disobey. None of us should disobey, but especially a prophet when he's directly commissioned. So what does Jonah do? If we, if we understand the geography here, we would know that Nineveh is actually uh, east, a little bit northeast. Jonah goes south and west, the exact opposite direction. He goes down to Joppa from where he was, and he wants to get on a ship to go to a place called Tarshish, which I believe is modern-day Spain. So Jonah is wanting to get out of there. And I thought about this for a minute. Why didn't Jonah just stay home? Right? No, God, I ain't going. Find somebody else. Why didn't he stay home? Did he think by getting on a ship and going away that that God would... Where did he go? No, right? He, He knows the psalm from David. It talks about we cannot flee from the presence of the Lord. That is what he wanted to do, though. But it wasn't... And knowing that Jonah understood that God is omnipresent, I'm sure he did. There's something else that's going on here. You see, it wasn't that he wanted to get away from Nineveh. He wanted to flee from the Lord. And it wasn't that he wanted to escape God's sight. He knows he couldn't do that. He wanted to escape God's service. Right? By getting out of Israel, going all the way to a faraway place at the edge of the earth, the edge of the known earth, he's getting away from his responsibilities as a prophet in Israel. Well, let's see what happens next. How does God respond to this? Look at verse 4 with me. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. And then if we keep reading, we learn that the sailors were full of fear, and they were praying to their gods, and the captain goes to Jonah, who's sleeping, and he says, Jonah, cry out to your God, which is kind of ironic as well, because God's the last person Jonah wants to talk to, right? I mean, picture the scene. Here are all these other guys. They're crying out to their gods. They you know, who aren't real, but they don't know that. They're just crying out for help. And here's the one guy on the ship who knows the true God, and he's sleeping. (laughs) Then verse 7 says that sailors, they cast lots, right? Well, well, this has to be because somebody on this boat's done something. So they cast lots, and the text says a lot just so happens to fall upon Jonah, of all people. So the sailors ask him, hey, what are you doing here? Where are you from? Who's your God? All these questions they pepper him with. And Jonah reveals that he serves the the one true God, the God who made the heaven and the sea. And then the sailors really got scared. And so they asked Jonah, what do we do? He said, well, if you want to calm the sea, you've got to throw me overboard. Why that came to his mind, I don't know. But 
So they, with trepidation, throw him overboard and tell God, God, it wasn't us, it's him. He said to do this. And look at verse 15. They picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So they do throw him overboard. And then as he's sinking to the bottom of the Mediterranean, what happens? That's when the fish shows up. It says in verse 17, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now again, some say it was a whale. The Hebrew word here is for, a large, is for fish, so it's likely a large fish. But the great miracle is not that the fish swallows him, right? And it's not the fact that he's in the fish three days and three nights. It's the fact that he's alive in there. Right? That's what chapter 2 is all about. It's this prayer that Jonah gives to God when he says, I cried out to you as I was sinking, and you heard me, and you saved me, you delivered me. Now, we have to admit, it was a rather unique approach uh, to delivering him, but from inside the fist, Jonah prayed, and that's the great miracle. Now, I have to throw this in, because this is sad but funny. As I was studying this book, and you know, there are many liberal scholars you know, who don't believe in these types of miracles. And so some of them were trying to argue that actually, as they were studying the Hebrew text, that this was the idea that there was a place Jonah went to called Fish Inn. I'm not kidding. Some people will go to any lengths. In any case, he was not Fish Inn. He was in the fish, all right? Chapter 2 gives Jonah's poem of thanksgiving. And then it says at the end of chapter 2, after three days in the fish, it says, The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited up Jonah onto the dry land. The fish had enough of Jonah, and it literally vomited him, puked him out onto the shore, perhaps near where the ship had left. We don't know for sure. But let's picture Jonah in that moment. Where has he been for three days? Inside a fish. Stomach acid. Probably didn't smell too great. Probably didn't feel too good. Probably was pretty pale and bleached. Maybe seaweed and who knows what else was on this guy, caked on this guy. And so he's sitting there. He's on the beach. He just got puked out of a fish. And he stands there. And then God says, Jonah, are you ready to go now? Well, that's what we see in verse 1 of chapter 3. Look there with me. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So here... God gives the same command, the same instruction that he gave right at the beginning, didn't he? Arise, go to Nineveh, proclaim the message I will give you. And this time, Jonah says yes. So he takes the journey to the east and north, probably 500, 550 miles across the desert to get to Nineveh. It's in modern-day Iraq, by the way, Mosul, Iraq. And do you remember when he gets there, he preaches this message that the text says, right? Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Five words in Hebrew. That's all he says. How did the Ninevites respond? Look with me at verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Now we have to stop there a minute. That word there is, they trusted in God. This is an amazing miracle. And notice, we see that belief is genuine in how they respond. They called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. 
Verse 6, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. This, brothers and sisters, is absolutely incredible. I mean, think of this. Say Jim Stone decides he wants to become a missionary. He feels the call of God to go to Iraq, to go to ISIS and proclaim judgment and that they all repent. It's stunning. This is absolutely stunning. An entire city of Gentile pagans, known for their violence, known for their wickedness, known for their idol worship. Here comes this Jewish guy out of nowhere, looking, you know, I don't know by then how he looked, but he comes into the city, he just preaches his message, God's going to destroy you in 40 days, and they repent and believe. If that doesn't tell us salvation is a miracle of God, nothing will. This is absolutely incredible. I mean, as, as amazing as Billy Graham's ministry was, he never converted an entire city. 120,000 plus. That's the city of Burbank. And notice God's response. Look at verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. You know, this is quite a story. It's an amazing story, really. Right? Jonah obeys, the Ninevites repent, and the fish no longer suffers from indigestion. I mean, this, how, how better could it be? It's a great story. But as we look at our Bibles, we notice it doesn't end at chapter 3. There's more to the story. And well, there should be, because there should still be in the back of our minds a burning question. And that question is this. Why did Jonah so blatantly rebel against God's command to go to Nineveh? I mean, knowing how much he hated these Gentiles, you would think he would have jumped at the chance to go proclaim a message of judgment. But why did he refuse? Why did he turn around and go the opposite direction? Was he fearing persecution and death? I mean, the reputation of these Assyrians is well known. Was he concerned about them? Perhaps he didn't want to travel. It's a long way, a long journey across the desert. Maybe he was just recognizing, I don't want to take this long journey. They're not going to repent. They're not going to turn. They're not going to change. Or maybe he was just done with being a prophet, the hard life of a prophet. So he says, I'm just, I'm going to get out of here. Whatever it was, it was a big enough issue that Jonah was willing to directly say no to God and refuse to go. Why? That's why we have chapter 4. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 4. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Now the it here refers to what God did in the last verse. When God relented, didn't bring judgment, that's what greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. The word here is very hot. Verse 2 then says, He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. 
Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. We learn here in chapter 4, there was a conversation that took place back at the very beginning. A conversation between Jonah and Yahweh that, interestingly enough, the author chose not to tell us about until this chapter. And here we learn that that Jonah told God he didn't want to go. Why? Rather strange reason. Because he knew God was compassionate and merciful. In fact, Jonah was so confident in God's compassion that he knew God would show mercy upon these wicked Assyrians. Jonah himself declares this theme, this focus on God's compassion as he quotes from Exodus 34, 6, which is what God told Moses when Moses, uh, remember Moses had asked God, show me your glory. And so God put Moses behind a rock. And then as he walked by, he declared these words, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. It's really a theme all through scripture. In fact, David said in Psalm 145, verse 8, Yahweh is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. So why did Jonah refuse to go? Jonah realized this. He was not being sent by God with a message of judgment, but actually a message of warning. Because he knew God is the God of second chances. He didn't want these Ninevites to have a second chance. He would rather, to be blunt, have these Gentile pagans burn in hell. You know, and it's in Jonah's complaint here in chapter 4, that we find the theme of this entire book of Jonah and really a key theme of the Scriptures as a whole, that God is a God of compassion, that He is a God of mercy, that He is a God ready to forgive. We see His compassion all through the story of Jonah. In fact, where do we see it first? If you go back to chapter 1, we see it first with the sailors. Because you have to ask yourself this question as you read the story. Was that storm for Jonah or for the sailors? God could have dealt with Jonah any number of ways, right? He took a 60-mile journey from his hometown to Joppa. Snakes, robbers, lions. In fact, there was a prophet in 1 Kings 13 when he disobeyed the Lord. God sent a lion to deal with him. So God could have dealt with Jonah any number of ways on that journey But he didn't. He waits until Jonah gets on the ship. And then as the ship goes out and God brings a storm, it's a storm which terrifies these sailors and they cry out to their gods, they cast lots, the lot happens to fall on Jonah. And then they find out Jonah's on the run from Yahweh. And it is through that whole exchange, that whole experience, and then as they throw him overboard, the sea immediately becomes calm. Reminds us of another time, doesn't it? And how did the disciples in the boat react when Jesus calmed the sea with but a word? Peace be still. And it went immediately calm. It's the same idea that happened here. These sailors had the same response as the disciples. They stepped back and said, oh, this is, this is the one true God. What did they do? It says they feared the Lord greatly, offered a sacrifice and made vows to him. Now, some just dismiss this as, oh, I was just an ignorant response to these pagans. They just treat God like any pagan deity. No, notice a few things here. It's Yahweh 
that's mentioned here, God's personal name, it's repeated twice. They did not say Jonah's God or Israel's God. They said, or the God of the sea, they said Yahweh, his personal name. Notice too, it says they feared him. That's an Old Testament phrase that describes an association of true worship. For those who don't know God, that fear is terror. For those who have a relationship with God, it's this idea of affectionate reverence and awe. And notice too, they not only offered a sacrifice, but they vowed vows. They made commitments. This was more than just some religious exercise to a pagan deity. They have not added Yahweh to their collection of gods. Yahweh has become their one true God. You see God's compassion here? Again, you have to ask yourself, why are the sailors even in this story, really? They, they should be superfluous. It should just be, if it's focused on Jonah, why all this commentary on what the sailors do, how the sailors respond, the sailors fear, and then how they reacted to the calming of the sea. Because we're seeing here, these sailors left port as pagans. They came back as God's children. They went away lost. Now they've been found. God led them to Jonah, God led Jonah to them so that inadvertently he would lead them to him. God's compassion wasn't limited to those sailors, was it? There's a second group of people that we see him pour compassion upon. Who's that? The Ninevites. Right? We talked about them a moment ago. Those wicked Assyrians. Because again, God didn't have to send Jonah to them. God could have let them go on their lives with their wickedness, their violence, their worship of false idols. He could have let them die without hope and face an eternity of hell. And it would be a just judgment, correct, that we all deserve. But God looked upon those lost, sinful people and he showed them true compassion. Not only by sending someone to warn them, but then to relent of the judgment when they repented. Again, Jonah 3.5 says they believed in God. That is, they put their trust in Him. And like the sailors, they too stopped worshiping idols and repented, turned from their wicked ways, the text says. And then in verse 10 of Jonah 3, look there again with me. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. So in this story... We see God not as cruel, vengeful, looking for every opportunity to destroy, but actually a God full of compassion for sinners. First on the sailors, then on the Ninevites. But his compassion in the story did not stop with those people. There's someone else who experienced his compassion in this story. Who's that? Jonah himself. Right? You remember how the story began. Jonah runs away from God, boards his ship, is thrown overboard. He's trying to get away from God. And if, as he was thrown overboard, sinking to the bottom of the Mediterranean, if God had intended that fish to be punishment, he would have sent a great white shark. Right? The fish was intended to deliver him. It was an act of God's compassion which is another irony in the story. Jonah is so unwilling to show mercy to the Assyrians that he's willing to die, but God was willing to show mercy to Jonah and keep him alive. And while he was sinking to the bottom of the Mediterranean, Jonah came to his senses and he cries, Help, Lord! I'm sinking! I'm drowning! 
Verse 2 of chapter 2 says, God, you heard my voice as Jonah prayed. Jonah experienced God's compassion firsthand, didn't he? I mean, again, what an amazing way to do it. I mean, God could have had a log kind of drift by, or I don't know, any manner of ways to save Jonah. He chooses a, a fish, a large fish of all things. And God showed Jonah compassion in this story, not just once, but twice. The second time comes in chapter 4. Look back there with me at verse 4, chapter 4. After God told, or Jonah told God he was so mad at God he wanted to die, this is how the Lord responded in verse 4. Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city, sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord appointed... The Lord God appointed a plant. It grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. You know, in verse 4, you know, Jonah's angry at God. God asks him the question, do you have a right to be angry? Jonah is so mad that he ignores God's question and walks away. I mean, this guy is... You know, so he goes out, stomps out of Nineveh to pout, and he's out there on the hillside. It gets pretty hot out there, you know, up to 130 degrees in the summer. So he builds himself a shelter. God causes his plant to miraculously grow over his head in a day. Uh, now, there's arguments among scholars. Was it a large vine? Was it an ivy plant? Some type of squash plant? We can't be sure. The important question is not what kind of plant it was, but why God put it there. It seems God is showing Jonah compassion again by bringing him some relief from the heat of the sun. As it says in verse 6, look there. The plant grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head. Earlier, God had used a fish to deliver Jonah from drowning. And here he uses a plant in order to deliver him from heat stroke. Or is there something else going on? Look again at verse 6. There's a second purpose statement there. Did you guys catch it? It says the plant grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head. And then notice to deliver him from his discomfort. Now, the NIV says to ease his discomfort. The ESV says to save him from his discomfort. Now, we have to understand what the original language is saying here. Because, you see, God's compassion isn't in providing, ultimately providing this plant for shade because he kills the plant the next day. He sent the plant here not just to shade Jonah, but notice it says to save Jonah. Save him from what? New American Standard and ESV have the word discomfort there. New King James and that Bible say misery. Now, those of you with an ESV Bible, do you see a footnote? Shake your head or something if you do. Come on, confess. If you're an ESV person, I want to know right now. (laughs) ESV gets a point on this one, though, because most ESV Bibles, there should be a footnote there. Do you guys see it? What's the footnote say? Those of you that have it. His evil. Actually, the word that is used there, ra'ah, 
its core idea, its core definition and meaning is bad or evil. What's he saying here? To shade, be a shade over his head to save him from his evil. Hold that thought. We'll come back to it in a minute. And it's here we get to the heart of this story. It's here we get to why this story was written. It's here we get to the message of the story, not only for the prophet, but also for us. Because God was more interested in rescuing Jonah's heart than his body. He wanted to rescue his heart from the heat of his hatred, not just his body from the heat of the sun. Again, certainly the Lord could have let Jonah sit there and sulk. I mean, after all, right, he directly disobeys him first at the beginning. And then here he's complaining because God showed mercy. And in fact, he showed mercy to the extent that he did not bring judgments. And God could have let, all right, you want to pout, Jonah? Fine. You can sit there in the heat and suffer. But God shows mercy upon Jonah, not by bringing the plant for shade, but ultimately he wants to use the plant in order to get to his heart and to teach him an important lesson. You know, after God had shown mercy to the Ninevites, it said in chapter verse 1 of chapter 4, it greatly displeased Jonah. Actually, that word for displeased there uh, is important. I'm going to get to it in a minute. But the word for anger there is burning anger. Like he was furious. He was irate. He was hot. In fact, he was so angry, he says, Lord, take away my life. Which again, I find ironic because think about the prophet Elijah. Do you remember his story after Mount Carmel? He defeats the prophets of Baal and he goes out. He, he goes like a 70 mile journey, comes out in the middle of the desert, but he finds out that Queen Jezebel is still on the throne. After all he went through in defeating the prophets of Baal, the queen who brought in those prophets is still on the throne. And he says, what's the point? I want to die. It's ironic. Elijah wanted to die because the people did not turn to Yahweh. Jonah here wants to die because the people did. So God asked Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? And again, instead of answering the question, Jonah walks away. And it says he went out of the city, sat east of it. We've got to notice another little detail that the narrator tells us about, the author discloses in this chapter. He says, or in chapter 3, he said Nineveh was a three days walk, right? How long did Jonah spend in Nineveh? One day. He's coming from the west. So apparently comes in through the west gate, spends a day proclaiming 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed, goes all the way through the city directly, goes to the east gate, out the east gate, up onto the hill, and he sits there. Builds a shelter, it says, to see what would happen. Why did he do that? Again, you would think, all right, God, I did what you told me to do. I'm out of here. But he doesn't. He stays. Why? Given what we know of Jonah, I think he was hoping the Assyrians would go back to sinning and that God would bring judgment ultimately. Because, you see, Jonah's heart hadn't changed here. His heart had not changed. Jonah could care less about what God wanted here and what God did. There was not a change in him. He still had the same heart he did the first time God told him to go, but he probably didn't want to spend another night inside of a fish, so he says, fine, I'll go. But his heart wasn't there. His actions had changed, but not his attitude. In fact, go back to chapter 4, verse 1. I want to hit that phrase, it greatly displeased Jonah. 
that word for displeased here is again the word ra'ah, which means evil. Do you know what God, how Jonah viewed God's response of mercy? The text literally says this, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. God's compassion and mercy to Jonah was a great wrong. He thought God was doing something bad by showing them mercy. What an incredible heart full of hate, racist, self-righteous. That word ra'ah, we need to take a close look at. It's used by the author all through the story. It's a key word that links what's going on here. God tells Jonah in Jonah 1 verse 2, he says the wickedness or the ra'ah of the Ninevites had come up before him. Then in verse 7, the sailors say, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity, this ra'ah, has struck us. This word ra'ah has the idea of something bad or evil that a person does or that happens to a person. And so in verse 8 of chapter 1, it's translated as a calamity. And then again in verse 7. And then Jonah, after preaching this message to the Ninevites to to call the people to tell them God's bringing judgment, it says in verse 8 of chapter 3, the king said, each may turn from his wicked way, his ra'ah. And then in verse 10, Of chapter 3, it says, In response to the Ninevites' repentance, God relented concerning the ra'ah, the calamity that he was about to bring. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, God's action of mercy is seen by Jonah as ra'ah. And then verse 6, God brings the plant over Jonah and then takes it in order to save him from his ra'ah. One commentator said the greatest evil in this book is Jonah. In fact, Martin Luther said Jonah was worse than the Ninevites because he tried to keep heaven from them. And so when God brings this whole situation with the plant, what he is doing here is he wants to teach Jonah a lesson to deliver him from his heart of bitterness, hatred, racism, self-righteousness, and pride. Verse 6 says, when the plant first grew, literally Jonah rejoiced the great rejoicing. He was so happy. He had this plant to give him shade. And then the next day, God brings a worm or a grub or a weevil. Some creature destroys the plant as fast as it had grown. And not only did God remove the plant, but notice in the text it said that God brought a scorching east wind. He wanted to crank up the heat a little bit. A wind so strong that it blew Jonah's shelter over. So there he's sitting, right? No plant, no shelter. He's in the heat, ready to have heat stroke. And he says, I just want to die. And so in verse 9, God asks him the question again. Do you have a right to be angry for the plant? Jonah says what? Yes, I do. I miss my plant. I think he said it in just that way. Now Jonah cares about something. He refused to go to Nineveh because he didn't care if the Ninevites were judged, died in judgment. He refused to call on God in the ship. He didn't care if the sailors survived or not. He refused to want God to save the Ninevites. This same prophet gets to the point that he says he wants to die because of a plant. Everyone else in the story is concerned about people. Jonah's concerned about his plant. And here's where we come to the point of the story. God has, through the author, led us 
to this very place, the last two verses, here's what he wants us to see. Look at verse 10, chapter 4. Then Yahweh said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left hand, as well as many animals? God's response to Jonah's answer that he does have he is, does have a right to be angry. God says to him, what? You cared about this temporary plant. You didn't put it there. You didn't cause it to grow. You didn't nurture it. You didn't sow it. Should I not care for an entire city of people, of lost souls who've been created in my image, 120,000 people? Should I not care for them that they're on their way to eternal destruction? Then the story stops. It abruptly ends. You ever notice that? Wait, wait, wait a minute. Hold on a second. What did Jonah do? Did, did he finally get it? Did he respond to that? Did he leave? What did he say? How did he react? And we see the purpose of this amazing story. It's been building up to this very question. And we don't find an answer here from Jonah because the question isn't ultimately aimed at Jonah. It's aimed at us, the reader. The author has masterfully flipped the story because he intends for the reader, for you and for me, to answer that question, to reflect upon that question. God is saying to all of us, I have compassion for lost souls, even as wicked as these people. How about you? about you you know as we read this story we can get so caught up in what jonah's doing and doesn't do we can so caught up in criticizing him and well we should i mean he's a bad guy but you know when i treat another person with contempt because they are not like me i'm like jonah when i turn a blind eye to the many spiritual needs around me i'm like jonah When I don't pray for the lost to come to Christ, I'm like Jonah. When I fail to tell others of the gospel, I can save them when given the opportunity. When when I don't care for the souls of those around me, when I'm not concerned for those in foreign lands, I'm like Jonah. When I wish God's judgment upon others who believe differently, upon the Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, I am Jonah. When I don't care if another person goes to heaven or hell, I am Jonah. Brothers and sisters, not only was Jonah and Israel called to be a light to the lost around them, how much more so are we, the church, called to be a light? Amen? The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. What a word picture. 
If someone's on their way to hell, at least use my dead body, God, to trip them up, to keep them from going there. Whatever it takes, Spurgeon said. This is a man that had incredible compassion for the lost. And we too, brothers and sisters, we have a wonderful opportunity to, to show the compassion of our God by, by bringing a message of hope, by, by bringing them and telling them of the good news. Right? We just celebrated. What, what did the angel tell the shepherds? There's been good news of a great joy which will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. No one else in history can save. We are lost without that baby being born, growing up, going to a cross, and being raised from the dead. Without him, we have nothing. That very night, with the baby's cry in a manger, feeding trough of all places, that cry echoes the compassion of God. He showed mercy. He came to Nineveh. came to Nineveh. Jesus said in Luke 6.36, Be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. You know, Jonah teaches us that the solution to a cold heart toward the lost is that it can be warmed by the compassion of God and seeing that compassion on display. That's what will motivate us to share the gospel. Not guilt, obligation, duty. Oh, I just heard a sermon. I feel bad. I better go do it. But wow, God is full of compassion. In fact, he showed compassion on me. Look, folks, we're, we're just as bad as those sailors and those Ninevites. You know how wide God's mercy is? I love what Frederick Faber said. His mercy is as wide from one arm to the other. From one hole to the other. Because look, the only way that you and I could escape the awful judgment of hell that we all deserve, the Bible says we've all sinned against God, we've all rebelled against God, deserving the punishment of hell because God is just, He is holy, and sin is bad. In His compassion, He brought us the message and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have not put your trust in Him and in Him alone, not on good deeds that you might have done, not on the fact your folks or parents might be Christians, or not on the fact that you, you believe in God, and in the end of the day He's going to save everybody, that, that's not true. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Peter said, there's no other name in heaven by which we must be saved. It is only through Jesus Christ because He's the only one that has covered, that has made payment for sin. When it comes to your sin and mine, there's two people that are eligible to pay for it. One is me, suffering an eternity in hell for my sin. The other is Jesus Christ, who suffered that on the cross in place of your sin, if you put your trust in Him alone. That's the good news. That's the compassion of God. That He offers forgiveness. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead... You will be saved. Have you done that? Have you confessed Him as Lord? Put your trust in Him alone. If you have, then you have experienced His great compassion. 
And you now have the privilege, as do I, of proclaiming that compassion to those around us. For Jesus' sake, may we have compassion on the 120,000 around us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a what an amazing story. One that Father, we we know well. We've been told this story since we were kids. But Lord, so often we can have our focus on something different than what you intended from this story and Lord, we can see here clearly how you desire to motivate us, Lord, to have a heart for those who don't know you, to have compassion on them, because, Lord, ultimately you do. You have compassion on us. You came after us. As your word says, that while we were your enemies, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, the Lord Jesus came. Lord, I would just ask that you would use or this story from Jonah, a story that really happened, to move in our hearts, to have your compassion for those in our families, for those in communities, at our jobs, for those around the world, Lord, who need to hear. Thank you for the privilege you've given us to be your ambassadors. Pray, Lord, we would be faithful because we're grateful and because of your example. Pray too for any here who, Lord, have not truly bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would by your Spirit open their eyes to see the beauty of a Savior who loves them and who died so that they might be free. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.